Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we are 308 miles from paradise and 106 miles from hell. Both are frozen over, by the way. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, 1680 AM, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, 95.3 FM, W237CZ, Hudsonville, and 88.3 FM, WPJC, in Pontiac, Illinois. And as always, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. He's so cold, he's nonverbal. That's the first for Jeremy. It is so cold. Um, although my heart goes out to uh, teen pop sensation Justin Schieber, who is in Canada right now, yeah. which is possibly even worse than uh, it is here in Michigan. Note to Justin, if you're going to start doing debates in the winter, try to do them in places like Florida, California. Texas, the Sun Belt. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Don't go further north to where it's even more frozen. So yeah, folks will be relieved to know that the reason Justin uh, Schieber isn't here is because he uh, was doing a debate in Canada and not because he got arrested in Florida. That's the, that's right. the other one. Uh, Justin's gone beyond the wall. <laughs> Should listeners look online for the debate? Is that, are they going to – We don't know yet if there's audio from that debate or or anything. I've seen the first couple of reviews come out and uh, apparently it was, a, it was a good one to be at. But uh, yeah, we'll have to get back to you as to whether or not we're going to be able to share any of that debate with our listeners. Yep. Uh, coming up in this episode, God Thinks Like You, Counter Apologetics, Polyatheism – Props and shit list. Uh, but first, now, as the lone parent, at least acknowledged parent on this podcast, I feel it's important from time to time to share some parenting advice with our listeners out there. And uh, this time, um, I'm getting some help from our good buddy, Mr. Kirk Cameron. I, I just want to pause there. Did you just allege that either Luke or I are illegitimate fathers? Well, I was more <laughs> alleging that, that Luke or Justin, but uh... Uh, I've had a litter of kittens for a while there. When when you when you've nurtured life, man, then we can talk. Then yeah. Dave, we can talk. All, all right. When you've cleaned up vomit true. at three a.m., I've never nursed a kitten. Um, Thank you. When someone's swallowed floss and you're waiting for that to pass, <laughs> then then you hit. hit I remember the, right the epic floss incident. Oh. Then you've earned the right to talk to me. Hey, speaking of such things and parenting in general, I'm happy to say that I am officially done with diapers for the rest of my life. That's the what you one, think. I mean until I have my own, but then someone Lord else is willing. changing them. So, But yeah, here uh, some some parenting advice from Kirk Cameron. Actually, um, it's not directly from him, but he's promoting what he calls, quote, a great article on his website. Um, and this uh, comes to us by way of – Hemet Mehta, uh, the friendly atheist. Here's some quotes from this great article on parenting. 
children are not in need of lengthy, compelling explanations. What they are in need of is the understanding that God must be obeyed. Explanations tend to focus on getting someone to agree with you. For logic, the explanation runs something like this. If I can just get my children to understand the reason for my direction, then they will be more likely to follow my instruction. Well, this may sound like solid reasoning. It <laughs> is not. Explanations wow. are more consistent with gaining approval and winning arguments. Neither of these are appropriate goals for biblical parenting and can lead to anger in your children, as Ephesians warns about. Wow. Don't explain things to your kids. Yeah. Just let them know that this is what God wants. Shut up and do it. Um, the article is actually written by Jay Yount, and he goes on to talk about um, how you should continue this no-explanation scenario all the way through the teen years. <laughs> yeah. Quote, children from 6 to 12 must be encouraged to, to obey because they know this pleases God. Your discussions will be more involved than with younger children, but again, you're not trying to win their approval. You want them to grasp how important it is to trust God and the reliability of his word. This type of training will yield a conscience that is sensitive to the things of God it doesn't take much insight to realize that teenagers and long explanations don't go well together. Get it? Because wow, teenagers yeah. are assholes. It's, it's uh, interesting because we've talked – I've talked on the show before about the one consistent finding that differentiates types of parents by religion is conservative parents emphasize obedience mm -hmm. in comparison to autonomy. And that's even one of the items they use to measure authoritarianism is that if you emphasize mm -hmm. in kids obedience rather than autonomy. But it's beautiful to have somebody explain you know, that, that worldview because yeah. it essentially creates a coalition where the parent is a substitute for God or analogous. Mm -hmm. Like as God is to humanity telling us what we should do, the parent is to the kid. And so they provide, they provide themselves as like a substitute God figure. What's more perfect training to be an authoritarian as an adult than to have those sorts of things with your parent as a kid. Yeah. I feel so cheated as a parent. I, I know I've said this before, but my parents had it so much easier because they could A, just you know declare that the, the God is watching you kind of argument, do what God wants, blah, 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 and also spanking. Like I, I can't do that to my kids. I'm missing out on all of the cheats to simple parenting. Yeah, well, what a shortcut, just just beating them into submission. Yeah, yeah I mean, and it's you great. don't get to enjoy that. Yeah, it works. Or I mean, very well. Look really, how I turned out. You have to set things up to make it appear that you didn't beat them. You right, know, you right, have to right. Push them off the stairs or something <laughs> like that. It's well, too bad that us modern parents have it so hard. I guess we should follow Kirk Cameron and and Jay Yount's uh, approach yeah. to parenting. Well, first of all, I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> I've seen the kids that grew up in these authoritarian households and mm -hmm. uh, once once mom and dad's physical assaults on them are no longer painful, once the spanking doesn't work anymore, you can't control these and kids. Many of them turn out like us or worse. Yeah. Uh, these kids who grew up with this authoritarian parenting style never internalized the process of thinking through right and wrong, thinking what they should do because mm -hmm. they were just taught to obey. Yeah, he, and, he even says in the article 
your goal is to have conversations, not explanations. And to yeah. me, I, I mean, <laughs> what does that even mean? If you're if you're having a conversation but you're not explaining anything, isn't that just a lecture? That's yeah. not a right. that's not a conversation. Uh, really, their goal is to have children who are submissive to their religious and political ends and incapable of thinking or acting on behalf of their own yeah, exactly. intellect. Way to go, yeah. Kirk Cameron. Hey, speaking of uh, child abuse. Yeah, how about that? Uh, <laughs> let's just keep the conversation cheery this yeah. morning. Huh? Uh, around – I think it was uh, January 16th, uh, several Vatican representatives stood before a UN committee, had to defend the church and its role in uh, enabling child sex abuse. Uh, here's the, the article headline, UN committee criticizes the Vatican for allegedly enabling child sex abuse. Uh, this allegedly. is from the – yeah, from the Associated Press. Why are they in front of the UN? Back in 1990, the Holy See ratified a UN convention called the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which prescribed different measures that its signatories are required to make to keep children from harm. Yeah. Uh, part of being a signatory to that charter is you have to submit progress reports. While they did give one progress report in 1994, four years after they, they signed the charter, they didn't submit another one until 2012. <laughs> All those years, well, yeah, no know. follow-up on the progress. That's when the media criticism started becoming too much for them. They had to send their second progress report. Every once in a while, the UN committee then brings up various groups to see if they're backing up. Mm-hmm. Their support of the charter because they could they could say anything they wanted to in their progress report, so they're bringing them in to say, "Look, let's see if you're yeah. actually walking the walk." The uh, UN committee that was formed actually had representatives from victims groups and human mm-hmm. rights organizations, and they also brought their own evidence, oftentimes using the Vatican's own documents, uh, showing that it discouraged bishops from reporting users to the police. I want to see this movie. Like, I, I want it to be done dramatically and you know, surprise. It should witnesses. be a great, like, almost courtroom drama oh, type great. of thing. Instead and of at like least a, the YouTube videos that are up there are portions of it. Yeah, they are really holding these guys feet like to the Tom fire. You have like Tom Cruise lawyer guy get like Jack Nicholson guy, except in <laughs> you the can't Marine handle uni- the truth. Instead of a Marine uniform, it'll be like a uh, a cardinal's style, uniform. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sit down. Your testimony is not over yet. You know, there's tons of like specific examples that come out. I'm not going to share too many of them, but I mean one like we've, we've one talked about many really great before. example directive sent to the Vatican, I'm sorry, sent from the Vatican to Irish bishops warning them to strike any mandatory reporting of of the abusers to the police, uh strike that policy from their internal policies. So, I mean, some of the evidence they're bringing to the table is pretty hard for the Vatican to wiggle out of. Mm-hmm. They, they presented testimony from victims, case studies from Mexico and Britain, grand jury investigations in the U.S., fact-finding inquiries in countries, the article says, from Canada to Ireland to Australia, all documenting the Vatican's policies, its culture of secrecy and its fear of scandal. The uh, the committee itself was not composed of a bunch of politicians. It was kind of cool. It was mostly experts uh, relating to the field. So you had sociologists, psychologists, therapists. Uh, major props to Sarah Ovedo. She's a sociologist from Ecuador. She was elected to serve as the committee's vice president and by all accounts, she was the one that was really doing the most to hold their feet to the fire. 
The committee demanded that the Vatican provide them with information detailing just how much they happen to know about the problem and how widespread it is and what efforts they're making to address it. The Vatican's response here is outrageous. Uh, their former sex crimes prosecutor was there, the Vatican's. But uh, he was gracious enough to admit to the committee that, quote, there are certain things that need to be done differently, end quote. Mm, yeah, well. But also uh, speaking on behalf of the Vatican, he said the Vatican doesn't actually have the jurisdiction to sanction pedophile priests. Oh, uh, that that's, that's actually a job for local law enforcement. They further claim that the priests are actually employ they're not employees of the Vatican. Isn't that nice? Wow. They're employees of the Catholic Church. And uh the bishops are responsible for the priests, not the Pope. The Vatican's UN ambassador told the committee, quote, priests are not functionaries of the Vatican. Priests are citizens of their own states and they fall under the jurisdiction of their own country. OK. Great. I am totally fine with that. Their own doctrinal policies? Yeah. Then then was quickly thrown back in their face. So why are you muddling in into the internal investigations of these states? Why are you shipping off – that's guys the way not it to get should be. They should be open to the laws of the states they're in yeah. and thus be prosecuted. I mean it's not like this was just happening decades ago. It's happening right now. There's a situation, for example, with Archbishop Joseph Wesarskali. He was the Vatican's own ambassador to the Dominican Republic and no, just no, – no, Now you're making it sound like he works for the Vatican. Right. OK. Right. He yeah. did that independently. <laughs> Or receives a paycheck well, from the Vatican. Just before the Dominican Republic uh, government, its prosecutors announced that they were investigating into the into allegations that he was an abuser as well. Mm. Just before that went public, he gets recalled to the Vatican, and nobody ever sees him again. <laughs> They're not returning him. When they were asked about it during this committee, well, first they tried to avoid answering the question and then they began insisting, look, the Vatican doesn't extradite its own citizens. They assured everybody that this case will be, quote, judged with the severity that the crimes might demand. By the but, local authority, but, which right. is the Vatican. So they don't have the authority. They're saying at the same time they don't have the authority over these people. You know, It's just out of their jurisdiction and then – they're pulling people in who are going to get prosecuted by their home states mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and keeping them protected there and just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, patting us on the head. Don't worry. We'll take care of this. Now, now were these all Jesuit priests because they were talking out of both sides of their mouths like the uh... – <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't want to insult the Jesuits like No, that. no. That's more of a history joke than I, it is. I, a, I know. Uh, but um, uh, yeah. Wow. Well, anyway, so the victim rights groups were very pleased with how the committee conducted itself. Mm-hmm. They're not so pleased with the Vatican's response. Mm-hmm. I'll leave you with a quote from Barbara Blaine from the Survivors Network of Those Who Abused Priests or SNAP. <laughs> she calls the Vatican's answers, quote, more of the same. She says, when they say that these crimes should be prosecuted by states, it seems so disingenuous because we know that the church officials at the state level obstruct those efforts to bring justice. These church officials continually cite new policies that some that sound progressive and sound adequate, yet we never see any evidence that they've followed these policies. They're empty and the policies have no teeth to be enforced. They've done this so many times over the decades. While this headline did make it around, the mm-hmm. headline related to the committee's 
grilling of the Vatican that did make a lot of press uh, – did get a lot of press coverage was this. In the files that the uh, that the uh, Vatican was handing over to mm -hmm. defend themselves, uh, they revealed that between 2011 and 2012, uh, Pope Benedict defrocked nearly 400 priests. So that's a, quite an increase from the 171 priests that were removed and from 2008 to 2009. We've been ragging on Pope Benedict I know. for years, and it turns out he was doing it. Great job all along, and they just kept it a secret. Well, like a good Christian, you don't advertise your good. That's deeds, right. You pray right? in a closet. Right. You yeah. you wait until media coverage is so disastrous that you're thinking of resigning, and mm. then you all of a sudden start to do what you should have been doing for decades. Yeah. So at least he was doing something. Um, but now, uh, quickly, I want to turn to Dr. Professor Luke Galen, or as I like to call him, Uncle Sugar. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about Mike Huckabee, shall we? I prefer the Uncle Sucrose since I'm a professor. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, Uncle Sucrose. Huckabee is usually we've we've often for for people who don't know he was a uh, briefly well he was the governor of Arkansas and right. a presidential candidate, but then he went to Fox and his talk show, and he sort of had a reputation as being a social conservative, but yet friendly. Well, he's a minister too, and a minister, yeah. but he, but like friendly, and so he could you joke around. He played bass, so he's sort of cool, you know, in a in a band. He's been on like the John Stewart. Show and mm -hmm. all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Huckabee on his talk show always at, like had Ted Nugent on a couple of times, yeah, and yeah. talking about sexual purity, and then having Nugent play Cat Scratch Fever, Fever live <laughs> for everybody. Which is no by, disconnect there. Which no is disconnect covered by the all. Obamacare, I believe. If yeah. you have <laughs> Parallel track. We've contrasted him with a lot of other nasty, mean, conservative like politicians who, in the past election cycle, went. Viral and famous for their comments about women that seemed to be the the every once in a while a candidate would rear his head and then talk about rape like you know mm -hmm. the body shuts the that whole thing down and then the yeah we had a whole election based on uh, people <sighs> saying stupid things about uh, women's health and abortion and rape and yeah. which which if you look at the demographics uh, was concerning to Republicans because they can't afford to lose women voters they need yeah. all the demographics they can since old white men tend to age and die. Uh, they need sort of uh, – <laughs> What they're best at. <laughs> so uh, th there was some talk that maybe they should clean up their act uh, and to the present, Mike Huckabee uh, gave a speech where – This is at the, the RNC or – Yes. Yeah. You know, two Republicans, four Republicans. So here's what Huckabee said. He's referring here to, to how the Republicans actually are empowering women more than the Democrats. Here's mm -hmm. quote. And if the Democrats want to insult the women of America by making them believe that they're helpless without Uncle Sugar coming in and providing for them a prescription each month for birth control because they cannot control their libido or reproductive system without the help of the government, then so be it. Let us take that discussion all across America because women are far more than the Democrats have played them to be. Uh, so, so wait a second. It's the, the it's the Democrats that are condescending to women. I guess because <laughs> it's the Democrats that are calling women a bunch of sluts that need the government to. I'm pay trying to for find their... to, to follow the reasoning because <laughs> they advocate healthcare covering contraception mm -hmm. that's condescending to women because yes. it implies that they that, that they, they need, need it. that to be covered. Those whores, libidos are out of controls. The filthy whores. Yeah. I, I'm, okay. Yeah. 
Um, Sequitur-wise, that would be a non. Um, yeah. The, so yeah, what's sort of almost – but I was uh, heartened by this because a lot of the – I thought, well, maybe the Republicans will clean up their act and and then get serious about not uh, you know uh, uh, having this war on women sort of language and the and the, the rape comments. But really, it's not a, what this shows is it's not about just. Abortion is about sexuality. Mm-hmm. You know, you might recall Rush Limbaugh's remarks when the Sandra Fluke thing she testified, and it was also yes. like, if we cover birth control, that's paying you to go have sex or something like yeah. that. That's a slut. It is about the sex to them. It's not about. It's not just about the whole thing of my my, my tax money or or you know even protecting the unborn. Right. It's a sexuality thing. And I'm confused by Uncle Sugar. Like, is he a pimp? Is he a John? Is he a junkie? I'm not quite sure what Uncle Sugar is. Does it mean that the be, government's the sugar daddy? Yeah. Is that the rich person who provides for your? That's how needs, I took it. I but, but that pays for you to have sex, which is very different than a normal sugar daddy. No, maybe especially because he's not. They're not having sex with the government. Yeah. So this metaphor is wow, really confusing. It's very me. yes, but it would be a great name for a band, mm-hmm. Uncle Sugar. <laughs> First album, birth control, candy for the sluts. <laughs> oh, um, speaking of people we don't care much for, uh, Dinesh D'Souza is delightfully back in the news. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if if this is the schadenfreude hour, <laughs> which it quickly it is becoming. Is, yes. I love this. The first, the first episode – for 2014, definitely getting it off we've, on a on a for, good foot. Right? For listeners who um, we've done the D'Souza coverage before, so for example, he was yeah. here locally debating Susan Jacoby at one point, mm-hmm. but we've also talked about his some of his other shenanigans, extramarital affairs, while preaching. Yeah, you know. And while we try to approach apologists fairly on this show, there's every once in a while there's a an apologist. Or two that we call out as a total fraud, and uh, and we've we've uh, done that with uh, Dinesh D'Souza before because in in my opinion, and I'm not going to rehearse the reasons for believing this here. If you're interested, you can listen to the RD Extra featuring myself and Ed Brayton, where mm-hmm. we take apart an entire debate that uh, D'Souza took part in. Because he is a clever debater and it's often but, for the yes. uninitiated. It's impressive when he does these arguments and sort yeah. of, you know. He's very clever. He's a master debater. So so clever that it seems clear to me and many others who observe him that he is a charlatan. He knows enough about the subject matters to know that he's deliberately twisting facts and using evidence in misleading ways. He's a poser. I think he actually is Religious. I would go so far as to think that he might be a poser the whole way around. Really? I think he's a political pundit. He knows that conservative Christians are good to have in the base That's where and so he plays to them because wow. he knows he will get cash in his pocket and rally the troops. I really do think Those this guy is a total atheists fraud. are just the worst. Regardless, what really matters now is that the US government thinks Dinesh D'Souza is a fraud also. Because they have found evidence that he was illegally donating to uh, political campaigns. Mm-hmm. In particular, there was a um, a Republican congresswoman, Dinesh D'Souza. Well, the uh, election laws allowed him to donate only five thousand dollars. So what he did was he paid he paid other people to contribute. Uh, overall, he raised twenty thousand dollars for this campaign. So he gave three and, other people yeah. five thousand dollars, and then just give. funneled that money back into these other people's hands. And uh, by the way, the congresswoman was lost because she ran against the now senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Isn't that right? I think that's mm-hmm. correct. That that is correct. So it didn't yeah. result in a victory, but. 
glad he got to waste that much money though. That makes me happy. He could end up paying a pretty hefty fine being mm-hmm. caught for doing this. I, I think it's unlikely but he could. The law allows a maximum penalty of five years in prison too. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, that would be fantastic. He, he would not handle prison no, well. No, and I seriously doubt it would actually no, go that it, far. I don't think he'd ever see the inside of a prison cell. For but that. what's fun is already how the pundits are twisting this around. Uh, D'Souza himself is remaining somewhat silent, but he's letting these other people make his points for him because mm-hmm. every time a new defender pops up on the internet, he's linking to them on his Facebook account and such. Mm-hmm. Just to give you a a brief idea of of the fact twisting that's going on. Laura Ingram, uh, an anchor for Fox News, said of this, quote, we are criminalizing political dissent in the United States of America. Welcome to the brave new world of retribution justice. Basically saying that because D'Souza is one of Obama's most vocal critics, the charges are uh, really aimed at silencing him. Right. Even though Ingram actually is very close friends with Wendy Long uh, a, and hosted a fundraiser for Long with D'Souza. So, you know. So mm. she may actually be friends with D'Souza yeah. as well. And <laughs> Sounds like, yeah. yeah. Well, it's consistent with their whole spending money on politics equivalent to speech analogy. Exactly. If it's, you consider any, any limits on that, then you're limiting speech. This is the Citizens United fallout. The Fox News Online headline said, Selective Charges, Fed Indicts Filmmaker Behind Anti-Obama Documentary. Radio host and former GOP representative Joe Walsh commented that there's a pattern here. Joe Walsh tweets, First Christie, second McDonnell, and after that, D'Souza. Then they came for? This isn't Joe Walsh of the Eagles, is it? (laughs) Well, Ordinary I've, average guy. Life Joe has Walsh. been good for him, though. <laughs> so far. So far. Yeah. Rosh Limbaugh said Obama's Justice Department is, quote, trying to criminalize as many Republicans and conservatives as they can. They're doing a fine job of that themselves. Uh, Fox Nation was asking readers to sound off on whether or not this is a coordinated, vast left wing conspiracy. <laughs> that sounds like a very objective question. All about how you ask question. the question, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, uh, winning the prize for most hyperbolic response to this has to be the YouTube video, Emergency, Obama Launches Purges, by famous conspiracy theorist and arch-conservative Alex Jones, who's telling viewers, quote, America is going over the edge. I'm actually scared. They can find a mistake in your checking account and claim that it was fraud or wire fraud. They can do it to anybody. This is just like Nazi Germany. And once they're done with these guys, they're coming after you and I. I was thinking that too. It is exactly like Nazi Germany, total equivalent. If, if a prominent Christian conservative intellectual can't have affairs uh, and, and and circumvent election laws spending, it's it's then, concentration camps for the for the law. That's, right. that's right. That's oh, right. I, I I view the two as equivalent. Mm-hmm. No question. So yeah, I, glad to hear that uh, D'Souza is falling uh, on hard times. Yeah, we have some other positive news, which is that we are, according to a story from Alternet, we're living through the most peaceful era in human history. That's that sounds great, right? Is that along the lines of Stephen Pinker's argument, the better better angels of our nature book? Yes, actually, they cite. Pinker quite a bit. Uh, the rest of the article headline is though with one big exception bum, bum, bum. and that big exception is religious violence which happens to be on the rise. Now I do want to say there there is a, something slightly misleading about this headline and I'll get to that later on. But it, nevertheless, it was a really interesting article. Mm. 
centers all around a uh, new study published by the Pew Research Center, claims that religious hostilities have actually reached a six-year high in 2012. Wow. And just to give you some of the figures, uh, this will all be quotes from the Salon article that we just mentioned. A third, 33 percent of the 198 countries and territories included in the study had high religious hostilities in 2012, up 29 percent from 2011 and 20 percent as of mid-2007. From 29 percent, not up 29 percent of where it was. It's yes. up from 20 20- Continuing on, the study demonstrates there's a sizable increase in the share of countries with high or very high levels of social hostilities, including religion. Incidents of abuse targeting religious minorities were reported in 47 percent of the countries, up from 38 percent in 2011. So, I mean, this is like a a lot of growth in just a single year. Of course, many of the areas where the conflict is taking place shouldn't shouldn't surprise us. Jews and Muslims fighting in Palestine, uh, Muslims and Hindus fighting in Kashmir, Muslims versus Christians in Nigeria. In the Philippines, it's Muslims versus Christians, Iraq, uh, Sunni Muslims versus Shiites. And I mean, we could just go keep on going on. Sudan, The People's Front of Judea versus the Judean People's Front. Yeah, splitters. Yeah. Splitters. Weirdly, not a lot of Sikh violence, um, except the violence Not a lot of Sikh on Sikh. On yeah. Sikhs. But, uh, which, um, yeah. but uh, quite also in the headlines today has been Buddhist violence yes, yeah. towards Muslims. Wow. Um, which has been steadily on the rise. Mm. The article concludes by pointing out that the Pew Research Studies noticed governments that have tendency of imposing religious beliefs, customs and norms on its citizens – uh, suffer the most outbreaks from sectarian violence. Not surprising. Mm-hmm. So uh, the article ended by saying, you know, this is a good argument for secularism worldwide. It will reduce these kind of uh, sectarian As conflicts. As if we needed any more arguments yeah. for it. Another thing about the the study that I liked is that while they pointed out that in many of these areas where the religious violence exists, there's also disputes over land or political control. Mm-hmm. The article says, quote, it's religious belief that shapes the terms and the willingness of one party to negotiate with each other. Which is what we see so in they, Palestine yeah, especially. They weren't letting people just say, oh, well, religion's not really the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the sole problem. It's not the sole source of the violence here. But it makes it harder for these groups to actually come to terms with one another and resolve their conflicts. Religion is oftentimes not the, the sole cause but it doesn't help the situation. When there's political turmoil, you just add that yeah. level of, of religious uh, strife and, and everything gets much more explosive. Now, one, one brief note before we jump to Luke. One brief note about why I feel that the headline is a little bit misleading. What, what they do is they – to get this headline, we're living through the most peaceful era in human history with one big exception, mm-hmm. religion. They squeeze together Steven Pinker's data showing that violence is on the decline worldwide with this Pew study. Showing that over the short term from 2007 to 2012, religious violence has been on the rise. Uh, why that's a little bit misleading yeah. is because uh, Pinker's book looks over kind of the long haul of human history mm-hmm. and tries to show that all violence, including religious violence in those figures, is dipping down. And so he goes back into hunter gatherer yeah. days or medieval, right. yeah. like, yeah. you know. So over the long swath of history, we Mm -hmm. see all violence going down and the Pew study is just saying looking at religion specifically from 2007 to 2012, we're seeing a really sharp rise in religious violence. 
But if readers are walking away from this thinking, you know, oh, we just keep on getting better and better except for religion, which just keeps mm -hmm. on getting worse and worse, that's not really the conclusion we can take away from yeah. from this I data. Mean, and I mean it's it's like what historical time frame would you want to measure from? If you start from the Reformation until today, mm -hmm. you would see religious violence steadily dipping and mm -hmm. secular violence shooting through the roof. So right. um, I, I sure wouldn't want people to be fooled by this article and so yeah. I'm kind of upset that that the author chose to frame it this yeah, way. Yeah, I mean in the past 100 years, we've seen um, the uh, instances of nuclear weapons-based violence skyrocket. I mean it was hardly even a factor in the <laughs> yeah, yeah. 1800s, in the, Middle Ages. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it all depends on your frame of reference. And actually this article relates quite a bit to our subject today for this week's segment of God Thinks Like You. So like uh, as Jeremy was saying, the, often the difficulty in these discussions is distinguishing the role of religion itself from other things like territorial disputes or you know, conflict over limited resources. So for, for my segment, I was looking at a, a very timely article of what we just talked about that came out recently uh, in uh, the journal Psychological Science. There's a whole bunch of authors, but the lead author's name is Stephen Neuberg or Neuberg, and it's called Religion and Intergroup Conflict. It's a global group relations project where they look at all the countries around the world and then try to make an assessment as to what is the role specifically that religion on uh, religion plays in violence. Mm. And so as you might imagine, it's this sort of research is difficult to conduct a pure experiment. But what they did was is that they tried to separate the different types of conflicts that could occur in a country. So for example, you could have ethnic ethnic violence that is between tribes like we see in South mm -hmm. Sudan right now with the or there's like a state versus ethnic minority uh, violence or state on state violence between uh, countries, but what they did is that they had um, they had experts sort of code within their country to what degree religious infusion played a role, and what they 're defining as religious infusion is the extent to which religion permeates uh, the the public and private life so mm -hmm. if somebody if countries that have like high rates of religious attendance or if they have values that are that are framed within religious terms, uh, that would be a high religious infusion as opposed to maybe the people are religious but it doesn't affect that much their day-to-day -day life. You know, the rationale here being that if you have a high level of infusion, if there is a conflict, especially if there's between groups who hold incompatible religious values, that conflict might be more likely to be you know, to the mat in the gutter knife fight as opposed to just, well, let's just sing kumbaya mm. and, and live and let live. So what they did is that they coded all the different conflicts around the world and then tried to separate out the role of just, you know, like we said, secular conflict for resources as opposed to does religious infusion, is that present within the conflict there? So long story short is what they found is, is that in areas where the religious infusion is high, the levels are high. And so you have like incompatible religious values that predicted a higher degree of conflict than in areas where the conflict didn't involve religious infusion. So mm -hmm. i.e., you know, areas in which the groups religify, if you want to put it that way, their, uh, their conflict in terms of the values, those conflicts tend to be more severe and protracted there. 
And interestingly, the secondary finding they they found was that when you have disadvantaged groups, let's say groups that are like we tend to we've called them in our country asymmetric asymmetric war, where they don't have technology, they just have like you know, if you have a if you have a disadvantaged group that's in a conflict with a clearly more advantaged group, if that disadvantaged group has a high level of religious infusion, it makes them essentially not back down. That is that was one of the more interesting things there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, it suggests that, that, that those uh, those groups with low levels of re, uh, religious infusion, they avoided extreme acts of aggression like unwinnable battles. Like right. we, can't, we can't challenge them or you know it would be pointless to try because we're in a one-down position. Whereas disadvantaged groups that had high levels of religious infusion, uh, their reactions, their willingness to sort of back down was lower. They're, they tended to react more strongly to threats to their group. In essence, it created conflicts, more severity in the conflicts. I think a group that is in a conflict for non-religious reasons might be more likely to value their life <laughs> and say, well, we can't win this, so why right. why go off and kill ourselves in guerrilla tactics for something that's going to be worthless? But if you're religious and you're viewing this as God's war, either he's going to protect us and see us through or it doesn't matter. We'll all go up in flames because this is uh, the right thing to do. But so it sort of fits hand in glove with Pew survey, what Jeremy was just talking about with the clearly conflict exists for mundane reasons of resources and just plain old, you know, taking over territory. Mm-hmm. However, the take home message for these these studies are, is groups that have this religious infusion where they make it a sacred conflict. It escalates and the violence is likely to be greater than if they were just simply to approach it as a secular conflict. So if the fight in Israel slash Palestine were purely secular, if it were just about I want to live here, I want you to live there, the violence would be less than – what it is now because it has the the religious trappings added in. Yeah, there's actually other work on things like uh, sacred values that that says that when you have – when I mean sacred, it's not just a matter of opinion but like God gave us this land Mm. or that we have rights to territory that are unviolable by – rational disputation like, well, I'll trade you that land and, and you give me that land and then we can walk away. If people on the other hand have this have this sacred thing, they become less willing to compromise. Here's the, here's the kicker. There's a backfire effect that when you make a rational offer, so like, all right, you want to – that's your land. We'll give you this, that those people often become insulted that you made a rational offer because you're not respecting the sacredness of their claim. The irrational. Yeah. So in other words, when bargaining about things can result in more intransigence if the person has a sacred value aspect because you're suggesting that that can be bargained away. It's almost Mm -hmm. as if you just said, oh, you need to get rid of your kid. I'll buy your child or you know, something like that. The person might react negatively. I would not, by the way. To end on a positive note, what what should we do is that sometimes – even though you can't offer something tangible to even just recognize that the person has sacred values involved – de-escalates the conflict. In other words, like you mentioned the Israel-Palestine situation. If instead of just bargaining, horse trading over I'll give you this land and I'll take this land to say your people have historical rights to this land or you have a great and, and proud history as a, as a culture, then make the deal. Then people are more willing to say, OK, you've acknowledged my sacred values. We're not just talking trading here. You've acknowledged that I have on some level a, a value-laden claim to this. Then people are more willing to compromise. Almost parallels what we were talking about uh, with the psychology of persuasion. If you uh, if 
you affirm somebody's values before yeah. presenting them. It allows with, them to self-affirm. Yeah. Psychology mm-hmm. is all psychology, isn't it? Yeah, wow. <laughs> Makes you wish you would have gotten into that career, huh, boys? Yeah, I sure. I got into any career. High-paying like career me. field full Someday, of jobs just both, both for the taking. Be, be like me. That's what you're saying. I, I'd have to be two feet shorter to be like you. Moving on to <laughs> other topics. <laughs> well, I have some kind of psyche stuff to talk about for this week's counter-apologetics segment. So let's jump into that. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. Recently on the show, we were subjected to a debate between Randall Rouser and Chris Hallquest. A lot of feedback we received on the blogs, a lot of people talking about this debate and we appreciate you all for sharing your your thoughts about it. A lot of interesting stuff Yeah, from at least one side. I don't think Rouser did as bad as everybody else uh, said he did but I was was as frustrated as everybody else with him for sure. Particularly one claim that he he made, though it was a rather minor claim in the course of the entire debate but the debate title was, Is is Belief in God Rational? Mm -hmm. Rouser was making the claim that, well, one way that we know that some people believe in God rationally is the fact that there are all these eminent scientists and philosophers, rational people. Francis Crick, Michael Behe. That's it, right? (laughs) Well, I'm sure we could put together an impressive list if (laughs) we tried. Only one of those actually counts as being rational or a good scientist. What better evidence is there than finding rational people who happen to believe in God, right? Mm, yeah, sure. Aside from the fact that you know, really the best way to evaluate the rationality of a belief is looking at the reasons presented for those beliefs and seeing if they can pass certain standards of evidence, I guess beyond that I'm willing to concede, yes, that, that might be some good indirect evidence for uh, believing uh, you could accept this position with uh, for rational reasons. At least, certainly, many people do follow that yeah, line and, of thinking, and whether it's good thinking or not. Rouser's not the only one to make this claim. William Lane Craig, for example, spends a lot of time trying to point out: look, theism is the dominant position in mm-hmm. philosophy of religion departments. It has, and he seems to be saying that's because it's won out. Right. Specialists in this field tend to believe in God. Uh, the, the arguments are winning. And so I wanted to bring up a survey. It was done back in 2009. This is an incredible survey for those who are interested in philosophy. It was the Phil Papers survey by David Chalmers. It, it was a survey of professional philosophers about their views. It also did some other interesting things like ask the philosophers to predict what their colleagues believed and uh, many of the results and the findings were fascinating because it kind of lays out a map of where the areas of consensus in philosophy actually exist. And surprisingly, there's quite a few areas where there is a, a majority consensus amongst philosophers. But one of the most bizarre findings in the Phil Papers survey was that if you're measuring all philosophers together – 72.8 percent of philosophers are atheists. That's a huge percentage. And only 14.6 percent of philosophers support theism. Hmm. 
And if you look at professors as a whole, the it's up to, the social sciences and philosophy are the least religious professorship. Mm-hmm. That is all equally educated professors. Mm-hmm. There's high religion professors like nursing or social work or something, a business. But the lowest religion ones are anthro, philosophy, psych, soci. Not surprising when you consider these are the areas in charge of uh, discussing (laughs) beliefs and our reasons for them and why we come to accept them. But there's a really strange twist to this. If you look just at philosophers of religion, so just those who specialize in this area, the numbers completely reverse. Hmm. A majority of philosophers of religion accept theism or lean towards it. The the number there is (laughs) 72.3. So almost almost exactly (laughs) – the uh, yeah wow. the opposite compared to only 11.7 of philosophy faculty members uh, who do not specialize. I can, I can imagine the lunch break room at philosophy departments when they're microwaving their meals. <laughs> oh man, what a stupid god thing! Huh? Silence. Uh, actually, people have looked at this and scratched their heads, understandably, going, "What what do we make of this?" Not surprisingly, there are many theists who say, "Well, you know, this is." They're the ones who know religion. Right. They therefore. know it the best. Therefore, uh, they know that theism really wins. And of course, others can shoot back. Well, I'm sure if we were to study what parapsychologists believe about the paranormal compared to <laughs> most psychologists, I'm sure we'd find the that, exact same there's thing. There's not much to it. I've just devoted my career to studying it. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't believe in it at all, in fact. Uh, <laughs> This is probably an indication of bias within philosophy of religion. It's a very self-selected group. Yeah, no one self- is being forced into becoming for you, one of these or people, or maybe one hyphenated self and selection. Yeah. Anyways, there have been a, a couple of different studies I wanted to discuss for this counter apologetics, trying to uh, trying to explain why these numbers are the way they are, and and I want to share the opinion of a of a prominent atheist philosopher of religion also on the matter. One of the but, few. And increasingly few. I think less Oh, really? Pe- the numbers yes, are, are going less even atheists further? atheists are going into this, uh. it sounds like. The first one, Diagnosing Bias in Philosophy of Religion by Paul Draper and Ryan Nicholas, published in The Monist in 2013. I'll just share this brief quote from the study. Uh, Working philosophy of religion exhibits at least four symptoms of poor health. It's too partisan, it's too polemical, too narrow in its focus, and too often evaluated using criteria that are theological or religious instead of philosophical. Our diagnosis is that because of the emotional and psychological aspects of religion, many philosophers of religion suffer from cognitive biases and group influences. Now, they're very quick to point out that of course, everyone suffers from cognitive biases and group influences. None of us are immune. But what they're saying is that religious people are especially prone or vulnerable to making these kind of cognitive errors. I'm just going to briefly mention my initial criticism of this study here is that they never go on to show that this is actually a problem. Uh, that is, these four symptoms of poor health, too partisan, too polemical, narrow, and so on. Uh, they just assert this as being true and they say our colleagues in philosophy of religion will will probably agree with us. And uh, they don't actually go and try to quantify this phenomena and prove that it's the case. So the whole thing is it begins with one big assumption and, and uh, which is going to make this study an easy target for its critics. Over the course of the article, Draper and Nichols – essentially argue that they they talk a lot about confirmation bias and how this can lead to a polarization effect in people's beliefs. 
one of their main studies that they used as a starting point was uh, Lord Ross and Leper's uh, 1979 study. Which I think we've talked about earlier yeah. in the past because it's a classic psychological study. Yeah, this is like study. a textbook study. Here. And it, by the way, it keeps professors up at night. If you have a hope that rational – giving people mixed uh, uh, information and relying on their rational ability to improve and lessen bias, this should cause you to uh, oh, stay awake and stare See, at the ceiling. This is why anybody, Cameron is right. You any, don't try to yeah. explain it. You just tell them what to do. Anybody who cares about critical thinking and should be disappointed that reality is this way. <laughs> The half of the respondents were given information showing that capital punishment is an effective deterrent for violent crime. The other half showing that it isn't an effective deter deterrent. What was interesting, I mean, we know confirmation bias pretty well if you listen to this show. I hope that comment wasn't as telling as I was it sounded. Say, <laughs> that was a loaded statement right there. Uh, you know what you might expect is that people would pay only attention to only the evidence that confirmed their hypothesis and ignore information that disconfirmed it. But this is even worse than that because oh, no. the participants did pay attention to the information that disconfirmed their hypotheses. They paid a lot of attention to it and they paid attention to it. Specifically to debunk it. Mm -hmm. You might say it drew scrutiny from yep. them. The Lord Ross and Leper study wasn't about religion but it was about beliefs about like the death penalty or social issues like that. And they had the people's pre-existing beliefs, high or low or I guess pro-death penalty, anti-death mm -hmm. penalty. And then they gave them this mixed information of, well, some studies support it like the rates of crime go down. Other studies refute it like states with death penalty don't have lower crime. Look at the evidence. And it, rather than mitigating their – high and low opinions on death penalty or approval, disapproval, it made them worse. The, the yep. term polarization is, is that the, the anti-death oh. penalty people got even more anti-death penalty when given the mixed Despite evidence. Despite the evidence yeah. that – And the process, as Jeremy said, is why did they do that? It was because they looked at the stuff that they – that went against their prior position and picked it. They doubled down. They criticized well, maybe the methods. Maybe it was bad. Yeah, but the idea was they didn't they didn't pick apart the studies that supported them to the same degree. Right, right. You know, making it even worse in 2006, uh, another study with Lord as the lead author. Apparently, the more knowledgeable about the the issue people are, the more sophisticated they are in being aware of the issue, mm -hmm. the the effect gets only worse. <laughs> Sophistication was defined as a measurement of how knowledgeable about, the, uh, knowledgeable about the issues and the content of the arguments people were. And, quote, sophisticated participants produced many more thoughts and notes than their less knowledgeable peers. Incongruent arguments solicited far more thoughts and far more skepticism than did congruent ones. But I, I guess the, the end conclusion is – the smarter and more educated you are, it doesn't make you less prone to this kind of cognitive bias. It, it makes you that much that it, better it at doing you. it. Yeah. That, that, that doesn't really surprise me at all. When you look at apologists like William Lane Craig, I mean this guy knows his stuff. It, it's not because he avoids reading the other side. It's that he reads it and picks it apart you know, regardless of whether or well, not that's, it's the, – The context of the Draper and, and Nichols study about philosophy of religion is that these are a pool of – not a pool of people who would be presumed to be unbiased experts. Right. They're expert partisans. Yes. And, and, and as we said An before – An expert at being partisan. If you select into that area, presumably because you care about that area, mm -hmm. what you would be is extra trained in picking apart the potential – 
counter arguments to your prior position. Yeah. yeah and so – and by the way, yeah. we don't want to pick on philosophy because psychology of religion is that way too. Sure. It's mm-hmm. pre, it's, even though psychology as a profession is predominated by non-religious people, the people who publish in journals about psych of religion and things like that are probably those who are more interested in religion because they're religious. How's yeah. your publishing career going there, Luke? Rejection, rejection, rejection. Oh, OK. <laughs> you godless pagan atheist. So, <laughs> So so yeah, uh, basically that's what they're they're claiming. These these mm-hmm. people are expert green beret level at cognitive dissonance. <laughs> but to some extent, we're the same way, right? Well, I mean, and when people present uh, positions that are opposing to ours, they, you know, evidence for God or whatever, we're very good at picking it apart, so and it bolsters up our our view. Obviously, it's not just a problem for philosophy of religion, people. Mm-hmm. Is it a worse problem for the religious because, than it is mm-hmm. for the rest of the population? And they make the case that it, it is because of the way that affective triggers complicate matters. So, you, but are the people doing this study non-religious because then wouldn't that be confirmation bias? Well, yeah. I think that's one way you could <laughs> look at it. And as far as motivated partisans entering yeah. into a field, um, the next study we're going to look at is atheists go into philosophy of religion many times because they were formerly religious. Right. Which, you know, and like the people on this show, we're motivated too. Do, do we really think we're all that different? Um, his, his case for saying that it probably is is because of these emotional triggers. So for example, he – talks to about a study by Edwards and Smith in 1996, quote, researchers showed that arguments advocating a position opposed to one preferred belief about capital punishment were judged to be especially weak by people who were high in emotional conviction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether a person's prior belief is accompanied by emotional conviction affects the magnitude of their disconfirmation bias as well as the form that this bias takes. And then they they go on to make a point like look at the emotional commitments of people in philosophy generally compared to those in philosophy of religion. I I actually like this quote here. So let me read it real quick. Uh, When a four-dimensionalist metaphysician comes to give up that viewpoint, she does not get fired from her job. She does not put her marriage into serious jeopardy. The sort of emotional conviction that religious philosophers of religion have about things like like God's existence or for Jesus' forgiveness of sins obviously have no parallel in the case of the four-dimensionalist metaphysician. And then he goes on to talk about several examples in philosophy where anyone who's not a Christian you know, looking at this stuff just goes, where the hell are they coming off? In fact, he it's kind of funny. He cites an argument. It's uh, I kind of wish Justin was here because he uses skeptical theism as one of his starting <laughs> points, saying like only a religious person would take this seriously right. and not view it as a trap. Uh, he also goes on to talk about the uh, psychosocial dimensions of this, uh, saying that group influence has a really strong effect on cognitive bias too. And he pours into several studies in this domain showing that religious groups create incredibly strong emotional ties to the group and a lot of outgroup hostility, which is something that uh, Luke is very familiar with. And uh, before I move on to the next study, which I think is uh, a little more direct to the subject, what did you think of this article, Luke, uh, as far as do, do you think that these cognitive biases can be shown to be uh, worse for religious believers? Do they fall prey to this more often than the rest of us? I've never applied it. Those conclusions are to philosophy of religion before, but yes, I mean they basically all those things are known in every other area. So it would be 
a surprise to think that it wouldn't also apply in philosophy too. And mm-hmm. I think the, the problem is that when people talk about philosophy, they assume that the person is, as you said, sort of objective, that they're trained mm-hmm. in, you know, in rational argumentation would make them immune to it rather than, as you were saying, the intellectual commitment is actually an emotional commitment. If your career is built upon something, if you've published papers in an area and it happens to be on a topic and let's say you see a really good argument against that, there's no way that you're going to evaluate that in a rational way. And the meta problem too is that we're blind to our own biases. I've talked before I think in a show about blind spot bias where you can train people to recognize bias. Mm -hmm. It's just that you can train them to recognize it in others. We tend Mm -hmm. to have the illusion of objectivity. So probably the thing in philosophy, what's going on is these people might be operating under the presumption that because I'm a philosopher and I've learned logic training, I'm immune from my own biases and you're not and we're not. We're not either. And so the, the, the only way out of that – that's one of my frustrations with philosophy is there's no way out of it other than an empirical check on it. The only way out of it to me is to have other people check yeah. my work and then to, and to dispute with mm-hmm. them. And then we'll find out to have testable hypotheses who's but right. At the same time, the philosophy is all about that criticism. Philosophers are – trained and encouraged to be very hypercritical but – Although well, what I'm saying is that I don't, maybe I don't know enough about the field but it's not just criticality but it's having a way out by having a testable hypothesis. Yeah, and, you say and that, I say this, well, let's go and let's what, do a study and yeah. we'll make it a clear and hypothesis. I agree, and see. I agree with that. When, when we're talking about stuff that we just can't check up ultimately. But whether uh, God can create a yeah. burrito so hot that even he couldn't eat it, that's an untestable yeah. hypothesis. And, and that uh, – and so is it? So I want to mention another study. This was by Helen de Cruz, qualitative study on religious attitudes and motivations of philosophers of religion. One qualification here is this was a survey that was distributed via websites. It was advertised on blog, philosophy of religion blogs and that sort of thing. We can't claim that these numbers are actually representative. Nevertheless, there were 151 participants uh, between November and December of 2013 who took the survey. Most of these participants were, were from the U.S., the U.K., Canada, and the Netherlands, and they were uh, they were either philosophers of religion, uh, teachers of philosophy in some way, or students in philosophy programs, philosophy of religion programs. That is, the majority of the respondents actually self-identify as Christian theists. Not just theists. Christian. Christian theists specifically. Many of them, even though the survey didn't ask this, volunteered that they were fairly conservative. So the majority in the sample are identifying with a specific religion. Uh, When you look at other religions, they're they're underrepresented. You only have four Jews in the entire survey. You only had one Muslim respondent in the entire survey. And, uh, but what do Muslims think, Jeremy? Yeah, based on that information, tell me about the Muslims. Right, right. But what the what the survey's respondent is saying, this really actually echoes what the complaint we hear about philosophy of religion is that it is so focused on Christian theology in particular, sure. which makes sense if the majority of the people there all the time. are self-identified Christians. The next highest number would be atheists. So there's 15.7% of the respondents were atheists and 5% were agnostics. And most of those came from religious backgrounds. Uh, so they might be motivated in their belief as well. But some other interesting findings here. 
what were their motivations specifically? If you ask them, what were their motivations for entering into the field? Here were the top two answers and these are not like select A, B or C. These are people who get to write them in. Mm -hmm. Top answers were faith-seeking understanding. That was the majority of the responses. Oh. Faith-seeking understanding. Isn't that a biblical quote? So I have my faith already. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. a catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> Some people were probably pigeonholed into that and didn't sure. say specifically faith-seeking understanding. Yeah, that was the primary response. So in other words, indicating some prior religious belief and now we're just trying to back it up. Mm -hmm. And then the second most common response was proselytizing and being a better witness. Oh, jeez. No real gray area with those answers, is there? That's disturbing. The largest amount of uh, say either I have a commitment to my faith and I'm just trying to make it better or, or I am trying to I'm trying to bring this. other people to it. You know, the much farther down on the list is legitimately trying to understand the issues, <laughs> interest in this in this particular area. Uh, so I thought that was relevant. Some other interesting observations too. How does philosophy, their encounter with philosophy actually influence their beliefs about religion? Those who had showed belief revision, so they actually have significantly changed their ideas after encountering the field, the direction was almost always in the in the direction of atheism. People are likely to change their views from where they started. They're likely to drift into the atheist camp. There's not too many people who are going in as atheists going the other way. So that kind of refutes William Lane Craig. Sure does argument. make it suspect, right? Mm -hmm. If uh, people are just seeing it's so obvious that the theist arguments are winning out, why are the only people who are ever changing their minds going well, to the atheist side? But what about C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel, who started as atheists? Well, again, I overstated my case when I said only. But uh, right. but again, it said I was that, being facetious. Yeah, yeah it was the uh, it was the dominant trend. Philosophy has a tempering influence. So if we look at people who have slightly modified their beliefs or have become less dogmatic in holding them, actually, this was maybe one of the more encouraging things. Most participants did note something like this happening: uh, oh. moderation of their beliefs, and that one actually went both ways. Uh, that was something that came out of the Phil survey, paper, uh, the Phil papers survey as well. Is that um, atheist philosophers of religion have more respect for their the theistic arguments, and theistic philosophers of religion have more respect for the atheist mm. arguments than non-specialists. And that's either really persuasion. encouraging because we don't need everyone to agree with us, but for people to be able to understand each other's positions and sympathize. That's a, a very well, good place yeah. to be. And it makes me wonder if that previous study, if uh, if the cognitive biases and belief polarization are as big of a phenomena at play here, mm. it might be more of a numbers game. Just who enters into the field, that, that selection, self-selection process might be the dominant thing going on here because a related result was as far as belief polarization goes, it was really only a minority of the respondents who – who would affirm that claim, yeah, I believe what I used to even more. Hmm. Uh, many, many religious people who answered this said, actually, some of the beliefs that they used to think were heresy, they now kind of entertain or more sympathetic to. They show that kind of process. I guess I will say amongst the belief polarization, they don't give any examples of atheists experiencing that. Hmm. It seems to be there is a minority of participants 
that do show attitude or belief polarization. From the examples they share here, it, it seems to be on the basis of faith, their religious upbringing. I guess the grand conclusion here is I, I don't think we can look at the majority of theists and philosophy of religion as a as a true indication that those arguments are any better. Mm-hmm. Probably has a lot to do with this self selection and maybe these cognitive biases at play too. Uh, most definitely, when you have most of the people going into the field to confirm their faith or proselytize others, that's a big, big red flag right there. But I at least want to pay lip service to one other opinion. Uh, this is Quentin Smith, who is uh, you know one of probably the more famous atheologists in philosophy of religion, and he's written a very famous article on this in Philo years ago. William Lane Craig loves to cite it, and he he gives more of a historical account of how this happens. And in in a nutshell, it's basically this: in the sixties, in the era, in the couple of decades after the sixties, you have people like Alvin Plantinga and others who were very, very sophisticated epistemologists who wrote very challenging books that were hard to refute at first. And the kind of the boom in philosophy of religion afterwards, Christians scrambled to create all sorts of organizations for Christian philosophers and developed rather aggressive recruitment strategies for packing these philosophy departments full of people who think like them. And so uh, Quentin Smith goes into a little bit of the history of how that develops. But he actually uh, reserves most of the blame for atheists themselves. His claim was naturalists and atheists just felt they didn't need to answer these guys. Basically, they claim what a lot of those snotty commenters on our blog claim Mm -hmm. is that it's just not worth the time to combat these arguments. As a result, Quentin Smith says many of them hold outdated arguments in support of naturalism and atheism. They're not current. They don't know how to answer their theistic critics. And Smith is arguing, you know, we need to start packing the philosophy departments in the other direction. We need to get more philosophers who take these ideas seriously and are willing to aggressively argue with them. So yeah, it might be fun sometime. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Uh, It might be fun sometime to get Quentin Smith on the show to talk about the areas in which naturalists have failed to do their part. Let's turn now to uh, props and shit list. We we start off here with something that sounds like a really great props item. Ugandan president blocks anti-gay bill. Now we've been talking about you gotta this. You got to be kidding me. We've been talking <laughs> about this for for years. This um Ugandan anti-gay – kill the gays bill that's been pushed by a lot of American uh, right-wingers yep. going to Uganda. Well, the president finally got it across his desk and he vetoed it. He would not pass the controversial anti-gay bill um, passed by his parliament. Hooray. Um, saying that there are other ways of dealing with, quote, abnormal people. Yeah, that's the – It gets kicker. it gets worse. Um the bill, which would punish, quote, aggravated homosexuality, end quote. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Uh, you know, if I was a homosexual in Uganda, I'd be pretty I'd fucking be aggravated. Very aggravated, yeah. Um, would punish them with life imprisonment, has been widely criticized by rights activists both within the country and internationally, and of course here on this very show. The president goes on to explain why he vetoed this. Yeah. The question at the core of the debate of homosexuality is what do we do with an abnormal person? Do we kill him slash her? 
do we imprison him slash her or do we contain him slash her? The president argued, the article goes on, that the best way to deal with the issue was to focus on improving Uganda's economy and tackle youth unemployment. And those are definitely important things to do, right? Uh, suggesting that legislation was perhaps not the best way forward. Quote, uh, even with legislation, they will simply go underground and continue practicing homosexuality or lesbianism for mercenary reasons. Yeah, for mercenary homosexuality. (laughs) So, Uh, good. It didn't get passed. That's great. But uh, it's not exactly a... I I wonder if that's just him trying to quell some of the outrage of... Of these, because the anti-gay people there in Uganda, they want blood. They literally yes. want blood. Yes. So, I mean, he's he really can't veto this and at the same time turn around and Hope say because homosexuals yeah. are are equals and everything yeah, else. Yeah. So, hopefully, that's rhetoric, but still, it's disturbing rhetoric. Yeah. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully, to avoid mercenary lesbianism, uh, yeah. Uganda will will stop trying to make laws that will uh, persecute. Uh, gays and lesbians, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Um, and uh, another item on the props list uh, here in the United States, in Oklahoma, perhaps uh, you have heard of the new proposed religious statue for the lawn of the Oklahoma State Capitol. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy has just shown Luke a picture of the proposed statue. How do we describe it? It's a satanic goat-looking thing with a couple little kids. Yeah, it is, and uh, a huge pentagram. It is, in fact, the uh, satanic figure Baphomet, the goat-headed pagan idol, sitting on a uh, a, throne a throne with a pentacle yeah. behind him, and a little boy and a little girl standing to either side of him, looking up to it's, him. As, it's adorable and it, terrifying. It is at it's the both same of those time. things. Should the, should the chiseled quotation be "Let the children come unto me and do not hinder them"? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because in Oklahoma, they recently put a um, monument of the Ten Commandments on Capitol grounds in in 2012. A Oklahoma-based group of uh, Satanists is now saying, well, look, if you have one religious symbol, then you must have others or otherwise you're showing favoritism of a particular religion, which of course goes against the Constitution. So they are proposing this statute. Now, that's great because – Partly it forces the hand of, of yeah. Oklahoma to either say, look, we are favoring one over the other or – and we have to take this down or we have to let up all these things. But why I love it is the figure in question. And the thing to keep in mind about Satanists is they're not what people think they are. It's a bit like the first flying spaghetti monsterism. It's it's a parody yeah, religion. Yeah, ultimate. Yeah. I mean, uh, many of they the tend to be a, a little more. Um, yeah, they tend to be a little more grim about it. Yeah, the, the, it's. A, I, I don't like Satanism because yeah. it's a very selfish um, kind of uh, philosophy. Ultimately, but also awfully clever. Uh, Baphomet, the goat-headed pagan god, pictured. It was a figure created by the Spanish Inquisition right. in order to persecute the Knights Templar and accuse them of worshiping a false god. So it's kind of throwing it back in Christianity's face. It's like, throwing the hypocrisy yeah. right back at them and what and on multiple levels because of course there's the could, uh, 
Could atheists then use the satanic threat as like you, you, you guys should deal with us because if not, we're we're sending, <laughs> we're sending in the goat people. Like you can have like the atheist. Hey, with the, I'm with atheist, the suit that, but I'm not a satanist. Yeah. We can have the suit and tie there and be like, okay, I've done all I can, and then the guy with leggings walks in with, with, the, with the pen. Furry legs. You're gonna deal with my uh, my friend here. And of course, Republicans, especially in Oklahoma, are not responding favorably to this in varying degrees of saying, "Look, Oklahoma is yeah. Christian. We're not." They're claiming but. they're not going to disqualify the statue because it has Satan on it, but because it has no historical significance for the state of Oklahoma. As opposed to the Ten Commandments, which were written in Oklahoma. Right, like, of right, course. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. But the, of course, they're going to make the civic religion yeah. argument, um, which is why I think maybe a better thing to do here would have been to get a, a Jewish group or a group that had believed in some – Different variant what, of what the Ten natives? Commandments. The, the Oklahoma has a strong Native American yeah, presence. Absolutely. So let's put some yeah, of the Native sure. American deities there. But it, it wouldn't still... be so easy to reject on grounds of a yep. civic religion argument. But nevertheless, the, the ACLU the is statue's the pretty and badass. It's, and, uh, it's really badass. This is going to be a fun stunt. I, I kind of want it as a tattoo, actually. <laughs> but uh, so props to uh, those Satanists out in Oklahoma for uh, uh, hopefully getting a new statue on the. Uh, capital of uh, of Oklahoma City. So let's turn now to polyatheism. Two thousand fourteen is a big year for mythologically inspired movies, uh, by which I mean there are, as far as I know, a whole two movies coming out based on mythological tales. Uh, Noah's Ark. Uh, oh, I didn't count Noah's Ark. Oh, okay. but yeah, that, cool. that one's coming too. That's bonus right. three. Yeah, um, and actually, um, the other ones are actually both about the same myth, and probably both will be terrible. And I, like most everyone else on Earth, will see neither of them until they end up on Netflix streaming a few months from now. Well, if it's a horrible movie, it's guaranteed to be on Netflix pretty quick too. They turn around fast. Uh, the first one with a whopping. Three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow, it's hard to get that low. It's amazingly hard to get that low. Is called The Legend of Hercules, and it features some guy. And the plot is as follows, according to IMDb. This is The Legend of Hercules, mind you. The origin story of the mythical Greek hero, betrayed by his stepfather, the king, and exiled and sold into slavery because of a forbidden love. Hercules uses his formidable powers to fight his way back to his rightful kingdom. Okay. None of which has any basis in the actual origin yeah. of Hercules, but hey, props for creativity. Uh, the second Hercules movie, just called Hercules, uh, is coming out later this summer, stars Dwayne The Rock Johnson and is directed by the worst uh, X-Men filmmaker, Brett Ratner. And Tower Heist, I believe he directed or produced. Not not a great scorecard for Brett Ratner. Um, if it weren't for appearances by Ian McShane and Dr. 8.5 himself, John Hurt, I'd imagine it's quite unwatchable. But with those guys, we might get a couple of moments that are worth seeing. So The references have gotten way too nerdy for me to keep up with at this point. Ian, it's Ian it's McShane, all you at this point. Dave. Ian McShane is Al Swearingen and there is no better character to ever appear on TV. Except, of course, the doctor who is John Hurt. Anyway. Um, Whew, OK. Yeah. <laughs> I figured since Hercules may be doomed to box office failure twice this year, now would be as good a time as any to look at the demigod behind the myth. Hercules, or more accurately, Heracles, 
is one of a handful of Greek half-breeds, half-human, half-god, who ends up achieving godhood. His story starts out a bit less auspicious, however, when he's conceived as a child of rape. Hmm. Yes, the god of the libido, Zeus, impregnates a woman named Elkmini while disguising himself as her own husband. And then, of course, as we know, since there's no such thing as spousal rape, and by the same ignorance that leads people to think that, perhaps we can also argue that since Zeus is pretending to be her husband at the time, it wasn't rape either, right? Hmm. Yeah, that follows. That sounds like Republican logic to me. Uh, if it helps you sleep at night. Well, her son would later become known for his labors. Alcmini's labor was arguably worse. According to Ovid, of course Roman, not Greek, when it came time for Alcmini to give birth to her massive child, she called on the goddess of childbirth for help. She showed up, but since Hera, the jealous and vengeful wife of Zeus, had gotten to her first, rather than assisting in the birth, the goddess sat outside the room with her legs crossed and fists clenched, thus preventing the baby from getting out. <laughs> Isn't that a great image? Elkmini was in agony. Luckily, Elkmini's nursemaid deduced what was going on and played a clever ruse on the goddess of childbirth. She burst from the room and told the goddess that the baby had been born, surprising her into unclenching her fists, uncrossing her legs, and immediately the demigod emerged from Elkmini's long-suffering lady bits. Even though Hera had tried to prevent his birth and would later continue to try to destroy his life, Zeus named the child after her, calling him Heracles, or Glory of Hera. Hercules is the Roman name that somehow became more prominent than Heracles. I blame Steve Reeves. When he was just a babe, Hera sent a couple of snakes to kill baby Herc, who promptly crushed them with his crazy baby strength. <laughs> Later, Hera tricked, or more, just kind of irritated him, so that he ended up killing his mentor, and then, most horrifically, his wife and all of his children. A little worse than Kirk Cameron with their parenting <laughs> yes. skills on uh, Mount Olympus. A, a bit more extreme than uh, even James Dobson. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure, but somehow they avoided dealing with that in the Disney cartoon or, in fact, anything that even remotely resembles the actual myth of Hercules. I don't remember Baby Sorbo slaughtering. I don't know that uh, Hercules either. the Legendary Journeys nearly well enough to be able to tell you. So as you can imagine, I am disappointed. <laughs> Three people in our audience got that. It is uh, for the massacre of his own family that Hercules is forced to take up 12 epic labors. He has to kill the Nemean lion, slay the Hydra, end the life of the Stymphalian birds, capture the golden hind of Artemis – that's a deer, not her mm -hmm. hind mm -hmm. – um, catch the Eurythmenian boar, obtain the Cretan bull, nab the girdle of Hippolyta – Tactically relocate the mares of Diomedes, purloin the cattle of Gurion, pilfer the apples of Hesperides, abduct and return Cerberus, the Hound of Hades, and clean up a bunch of horse shit. Wow. That, know, that last one was just thrown on there for that, the hell of it. That is – well, and that's not in order. But yeah, he has to clean a, a filthy stable of also, horse poop. Also, a remarkable amount of fertility symbols in yes. those animals that are and, listed And there. that's very important for Hercules as we'll see in a moment. 
Um, he has a bunch of side adventures as well, featuring some rescue missions, including um, uh, our good friend uh, Prometheus, and a bunch of homoerotic wrestling. But uh, thanks to these great feats, and honestly, mostly thanks to a little thing we call syncretism, Hercules became regarded as a god and was the patron of a number of Greek cities. He was a guardian of these communities and a role model for Greek youths to aspire to. He was held up by many militaries as the perfect soldier. Be strong, do what you're told, even that means slaughtering innocent women and children, I suppose. And because Herc was known for spreading his seed liberally amongst nubile young women... Herculites, we might call them, if Hercules were popular on Tumblr. He's even considered a god of fertility, and hence all of the uh, fertility-based animals showing up um, in his tales. One story, he slept with 50 sisters in one night. Well done, Herc. Yeah, that's like Wilt Chamberlain-level stats. That's impressive. On the other hand, Hercules was frequently depicted as a short, hairy man who drank too much, ate too much... Uh, often depicted as an oaf, uh, and he could be brutally violent for little to no reason. Yet, despite all that, Hercules is one of the most wildly, widely heralded and beloved of all the Greek heroes. Unjustifiably so, I would argue. Just goes to show you how messed up Greek and Roman priorities were. He's a complicated man, and no one understands him but his woman. Too bad he brutally murdered her after Hera made him cranky. There you have it, star of television and film, a demigod with no self-control who stole, murdered, and cleaned up horse poo on his way to the top. And just one more god worth not believing in. And uh, uh, folks, I don't know if you know this, but Reasonable Doubts isn't just a podcast. We're also kind of a blog, and we have moderate social media presence across the interwebs. Check out doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonabledoubts where you can share your thoughts on this and our past episodes, get into some spirited debates, and talk about how much of a shithead Randall Rouser is. That's my favorite thing to do on the blog. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at slash doubtcast. And if you're interested in having one or several of us come to your town and cast some doubts hither and thither, let us know. Justin's been on the road um, for a couple of debates, and I believe he's going to be up in Traverse City next you're, month. You're uh, heading up to one, yeah. yeah. Um, debates and uh, presentations. Uh, I don't think you'll ever get Luke out of the house. It's hard enough to get him here to record, but uh, you know, you can ask if you're interested. Um, you can uh, contact us at doubtcast at gmail dot com. That's also the place where you can send us your suggestions for topics. Questions, challenges, and beard grooming tips. I'd appreciate those, as would my wife. Uh, also, check out <laughs> you. <laughs> Revealing a bit much there, Dave. <laughs> Unintentionally <laughs> so. Uh, check out Public Reality Radio, our home station at publicrealityradio.org. Lots of fine programming there that many of our listeners, I think, might appreciate. And we'll be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. 
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.